Expedition 44 here with Ryan, Matt, and Jana. We are on a series on hell. We've done an introduction. And then our last episode, we had Chris Date on. That was pretty fun. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun episode. It was great to talk to him and kind of see, even though he's a reform guy and we're, we're more on the free we're will not. side, <laughs> that you can still get to the same conclusions on this because it's what scripture teaches. Yeah. So it's really interesting if you if you take Chris Date's theology and you kind of take our theology, we're at very different places. Yet mm -hmm. on this particular topic, we've pretty much arrived at the same thing. Now, if you've already seen that episode, you'll notice that the way he frames it is probably going to be quite a bit different than the way that we frame it, and that's because all of these things are influence influencing your total lens of theology for the scripture. Mm -hmm. And so I really liked and appreciated mm -hmm. the way that he came to his conclusions, but mm -hmm. ours today are going to be a little bit different than that. So with that being said, Jana, how did you, we, we all three of us, in terms of thinking of hell, this is where we land. Mm -hmm. Today we're talking about conditional immortality. It goes by a few different names, but for the most part they all mean the same thing. They're reciprocal. So we've got conditional immortality, we've got annihilationism, and then we've got conditionalism. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to stick with conditional immortality, but we're going to use them interchangeably. And I would say currently in modern theology, they are 100% interchangeable. Yeah. There, There is an argument that they haven't always been, mm -hmm. but now they are. So Jana, how did you arrive or come to think this way? Because 99% of the church doesn't think this way. And that was the same for me. I grew up as in a Christian home, going to church, and there was no other message, option, that was given to me. I was taught that people were going to go and live forever in eternal torment and lake of fire from my pastors to my youth pastors to chapel. I went to a Christian school. There was no opposing view. Yeah. So I this never, is it. Take it or leave take it. Take it or leave <laughs> it. And uh, your evangelism efforts were geared toward helping toward this end of yeah. helping people not go to hell forever and burn. And um, so I never really liked the view, yeah. if I'm completely honest. Yeah. And as the pastors would be all like, you know, fiery and Turner their faces burned. were yeah. burning, you know, like red, and they were like so passionate. I was just felt around. like it cheapened the gospel. Well, to I me. looked around the congregation, and what I honestly saw was boredom. Yeah. It became very, almost people were immune to it, and I didn't see the intensity and the passion yeah. of people wanting to leave church and then go and save these people from hell. So anyway, I, I just didn't get the idea that everybody really truly took this to heart and believed that yeah. that was really a reality that was going to happen to people. So fast forward, I want to say around 2015, some of you guys will remember, this was uh, national news. The Taliban was wreaking havoc in the Middle East and uh, we may be able to put up a picture in a uh, front page of like, I don't remember what, a Times Magazine, all over the newspapers. There's a Jordanian young man, he's in his 20s, and he's in an orange jumpsuit in a cage in the middle of a desert in the Middle East. Do you guys remember this? Yeah. And the terrorist doused this young man with gasoline and set him on fire. After he was done burning, they lifted up the cage and bulldozed his ashes. To add insult to the injury, they videotaped this, sent it to his poor family. Wow. And then they also sent it to the major news organizations across the world. It landed in America. 
I remember watching the news and they didn't show the video. If they even had shown the video, I wouldn't have had the heart to watch it. It's so horrible, right? But they had the reporters watch it. And the reporters came on and talked about what happened, what did they see. And I remember they said, it took a minute and 30 seconds for this Jordanian man to burn. Wow. And a thought popped into my head. And it was this, because you know, they do this in the name of Allah. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, Allah is more merciful to than God of Israel then. Mm. Because he's content with an hour or a minute and 30 seconds yeah. of someone burning alive. But our God's not content with that. Yeah. No, he's not even content with an uh, hour and 30 minutes or a month and, or a year. Forever, he's, he's, yeah. So I thought, Traditional well, ETC views. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, I thought I'd found the most merciful God. Yeah. I, I would like to pride myself on finding the God that was the most compassionate and the most kind. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got to be intellectually honest. Yeah. When the When the media ran that story, they described that act as heinous grotesque, barbaric, cruel. And I thought, well, why, why is that cruel <laughs> when Allah does that, or yeah. his people do it in his name, but oh our God, God does even something yeah. much worse, and we say it's love, yeah. and we say it's justice, and like, it's not intellectually honest. So I'm not even coming from an emotional point of view, um, which I guess people would, you know, uh, assume, yeah. but it was more like it doesn't, uh, it has to make sense in, into my thoughts and um, it wasn't making sense to me. So, so that's kind of where I started to research just on my own. I yeah. don't have a theological degree, <laughs> but I can read yeah. and I can read this, the, the, the scripture and I really appreciate. Um, and you're a critical thinker. And I'm a critical thinker yeah. too. <laughs> and so um, I, I kind of swerved onto this kind of my own and then yeah. in conversations just talking, we're like, oh, we've kind of landed on the same thoughts independently of each other. Yeah. So traditionally in church, we're kind of conditioned to not ask questions in America. Just kind yes. of sit in the pew, go along with it, don't think, mm -hmm. so to speak. And yep. that's been a real problem with theology and American churchianity more so. Yeah, we're taught what to think, not how to think. Yeah. So, Janie, you hit on a, a few things. The first one is that this has to fit with our framework of who God is. Mm -hmm. who, the, the character of God throughout the totality of the Bible has to fit. Mm -hmm. If you've got one picture that explains God in one way and you don't see that anywhere else in the Bible, that's the first red flag of saying this probably isn't good theology. We need to come to terms with this. Yeah, in the last video we addressed, yeah, God is love and we go off the nouns of God. He is sovereign too, but he's he's just. He's a God who's going to set all things right and we see yeah. that in the Bible. Um, but we got to look at what does this justice look like? Yeah. And we'll get into that today. So all three of us have have arrived at the same place through different avenues. Mm -hmm. Janik's kind of explained how she came through it through a kind of philosophical thinking. As Matt pointed out, some people kind of call that emotional thinking mm -hmm. because you know they kind of think about God's grace and would God would would God's good grace treat somebody this way? But it's very much a philosophical argument. And I would say that the majority of the people maybe in America that have arrived at conditional immortality are typically not yet seminary students. They're people mm -hmm. that are disenfranchised with the American version of Christianity and kind of sat back and said, there's gotta be another option mm -hmm. here. This just doesn't sound right. So Matt, what about you? How did you come to this view? Um, I've always, I never liked it. I've, I just accepted it because it was what was taught to me, like Jana growing up. Um, I started, 
as I dove deeper into the Bible before I even started going to seminary, I really questioned this view and I was a fence sitter beforehand because how could, even though I was taught death meant separation or spiritual death, it didn't always seem to line up with the passages. And it was when I took my first hermeneutics class and kind of read through the Bible with maybe a fresh set of eyes with some principles, checks and balances yeah. there, that it, I was really like, oh my gosh, I'm like, it doesn't even say this at all. Every yeah. single, like Chris Dates yeah. said, every single one that seemed to point to eternal torment on closer consideration taught conditional immortality. Yeah. Yeah. Every single verse, and we're going to go through And then you're like, today. why did this idea not come to uh -huh. me sooner? Yeah. Uh -huh. Why didn't this jump off the page to me? Well, I guess it's the it's the lenses, it's mm -hmm. glasses. I took the glasses we, off yeah. and... Read it like a Hebrew. Yeah. <laughs> now, my perspective is a little bit different. My father was an itinerant pastor, and he was the, by far, minority view on hell. He had come from a free will Baptist uh, upbringing, and they actually didn't take ECT as their main view. And so I grew up listening to him to teach what other options might be out there. Now, back in those days, they didn't really label them as conditional immortality or universal reconciliation, but they just simply pointed in scripture to ideas that could be different from what you were thinking. Mm -hmm. And so that's been around for a long time. We've kind of just gotten into this labeling idea of what it means and you know saying that I'm a annihilationist or I, I go with conditional immortality or even universal reconciliation which is another conversation mm -hmm. but my framework was a little bit different every time I heard growing up somebody talking in terms of ECT my red flags of young mm -hmm. theology would come up because of what was ingrained from listening to my dad preach and teach for many years and so my my difference in coming to this has more of been thinking what does the bible actually say and are all these words that new theology is putting on this do i want to gravitate towards any of those labels or do i just want to take my own view and i'll have to say at the end of the day i'm not sure that i can completely call myself a annihilationist or a conditionalist or something like that because my views kind of float across the boards of other options branch into a little bit of hopeful universal reconciliation at the same time so with that being said what is it that's going to separate conditional immortality from the other views ect universal reconciliation and we'll even occasionally throw an orthodox view of hell out there yeah um so i think that we when we start out Let's start out in the garden. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. We like the garden. Yeah. yeah, so Adam and Eve were dependent upon eating from the tree of life yep. for eternal life. And so when humanity disobeyed God, yep. ate from the tree of good and bad, um, it was an act of allegiance against God. Yes. And so that got them kicked out of the garden. And so basically in the garden, you had the choice between life and death. Yep. Um, and... John 3.16 says this. It's a, We talked about it in two videos ago. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever yeah. believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now this is important because if you go back to the garden, what most people think is that Adam and Eve were going to live forever because they simply were designed that way. And it's it's a flaw in theological thinking. What, what enabled them to live forever was that they ate of the tree of life. It was a gift that enabled them to live forever. So when they were no longer able to eat from that tree anymore, that's where 
immortal or, or mortality, I should say, began to come back into the picture. Yeah, so in this verse, there's two affirmations that conditionalisms make. Eternal life is conditioned upon faith allegiance. Now that sounds too simple to me. Mm -hmm. so, so we're basically just saying that if you have faith in Christ, then you will be granted eternal life. Now do the other views not think that? No, they do think that, but it's what is life pinned up against here? Yeah. Perish. Right. The word perish. Like Jana said in the, a couple of videos ago, we're thought, when we think of perish, we think of spiritual death, but yeah. apolumi here, which is the Greek word for perish, it means to die. Yeah. Every single time it's used in the the Bible, um, it is talks about death being killed. Um, the only sometimes people might think that it means lost or or to ruin, but that's only when it's used for inanimate objects. Yeah. And to show that this is the way that they use this in this culture, when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's used 75 times. Every time it's a human, it means to kill. Means to destroy. Yeah. Every time it's not a human, it could mean loss or ruin. So there's a question too: as is is the meaning of perish ambiguous or not? I don't think so. Okay. All right, John five eleven to twelve says, and this is the testimony: God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Assumptions and definitions. What is immortality? Let's start there. Yeah, so to conditionalists, um, we believe that the immortal soul is derived from Hellenistic thought, yeah. teachings of Plato. Yeah. It's not and that gets thought. into the soul. We say soul mm -hmm. all the time. That you know, this idea of this soul leaving the body, going into the pie in the sky. It's it's more Plato Greek, Greek mythology than it is biblical theology. Yeah. Um, so we got First Timothy six sixteen, which states that God alone has immortality. All right. So when we talk about immortality, we're also going to get into the push or the focus of the word eternal. Why is that important on how one side views the word eternal and others don't? Yeah, it, com it comes down to life and death. And so often in the Bible, they're like two opposite sides of the spectrum. But if really, if perish or death or whatever in all of these verses just mean to be separated from yeah. God, then it's not really, it's, it's still life, it's right. just a different location, right. yeah, different furniture. So we talked about Adam and Eve a little bit, and Romans 2.7 kind of comes back into play into this, where we have this kind of thing about immortality again. Is this something that's just granted that we are inherently immortal, or is it gifted or given or not gifted or given? Yeah, I, I think if since but Romans 2.7 says that we're supposed to seek after immortality, and that is through yeah. Jesus, that it's not a natural state that we have. Yeah. What about eternity? Let's define eternity. What does that mean? So, in the Bible, we get Aeonius, the ages, age, age, eternity. It's the word translated eternal. We'll get into that more in a little bit, but ultimately, Whatever that is, it's the Bible says the state where righteousness only yeah. dwells. It's about God's complete victory yep. over sin. And what we believe as conditionalists is that if, really, if 
um, eternal torment is true, then sin is never actually done away with. It's not defeated. It's not defeated. Yeah. It's always there for all of eternity, even if it's separated yeah. from creation or even if it's in Gehenna, yeah. in the recreated earth. It's still part of creation, and if any sin is left, then righteousness doesn't really do all there. God isn't actually all in all. So this is important. This We're, we're, we're going to be... We haven't done the video on ETC. We will get there, but today you're going to see us refuting some of the ETC views, refuting maybe even some re universal reconciliation ideas. It's just kind of par for the course as we're comparing these. And so this is kind of the first place where we where we get to kind of one of these comparisons is just this idea that if if etern if if etern eternity means forever and ever and ever for both sides of the fence, those in heaven and those in hell, it might frame your view differently than if you don't believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, going back a quick note on immortality, it's interesting what the snake told Adam and Eve in the garden, yeah. isn't it? Um, you surely will not die. Yeah. <laughs> I, had a, I had a, um, I'm, so I'm an ICU nurse, um, and I had a patient who uh, did die, and then we brought him back. I wasn't a part of the code, but he was brought back, um, and he was uh, admitted later on for some other uh, purpose. And I so I was talking to him about his history, his health history, and he had told me that yeah, he had coded, and they brought him back. And I said, "Did you see any light? Did you go down <laughs> any tunnel? Like, what did you what did you experience? Are you gonna write a book? Yeah, right." <laughs> and he said, "I felt nothing. I saw nothing." And I said, "Really?" He goes, yeah, when you're dead, you're dead. You know, he goes, I didn't know I was dead until after I was resuscitated. And that was interesting to yeah. me because I had been taught that when you die, and I don't know if you guys, where you are on this, but I'll just throw out some things that I, that have just been kind of rattling in my brain for a while, is I think it makes the most sense to think in terms of when you're dead, you don't, you're not conscious anymore. You're you're not existing some other place. Yeah. Your breath returns to the Lord because that's how we're animated with breath. Yeah. But it's not like we have a another existence somewhere, which I know is really hard for people to hear. This is such a gray area. It is theology. such a gray area. Yeah, and it's not that just... we can really test it because who one of us is going to volunteer to die and <laughs> resuscitate and then share our experience. And then, like we laughed about, you get books going both ways exactly. saying this and this and what so, is this dreamed I mean, up? What is really it? It's really hard to be dogmatic yeah. or be upset yeah. with anybody who has an opposite view because, like I said, we're not going to test this. However, if you think of death in that in that way, then this makes complete sense yeah. because yeah. everybody that's not alive is just not not conscious anymore and so that's how i think of death but you guys can phrase it in a different way if yeah th this view is called christian physicalism uh chris date is actually a christian physicalist yeah. he, oh, okay. he he believes that um but so i'm in i'm in good company yeah <laughs> yeah so I think um, when you're looking at the view, the important thing is that you come to the place that complete victory in God is going to be given mm -hmm. by death. And and that's really what conditionalists kind mm -hmm. of arrive at together. So you might have a conditionalist that believes this or that, and like what Jana was describing, nobody really lands in the same place on what mm -hmm. happens after we die. This is mm -hmm. all over the board. I mean, there's some people that really frame those that don't believe still going to a place like Hades and that's mm -hmm. why you know they would say that it's mentioned in Revelations because it's still around and it gets thrown in at the end of Revelations into the lake of fire where other people kind of believe in 
you know, an, a sleep mode or something like that. And then you have the people that are with God that are just simply going into the party land of heaven. And this is the, you know, I saw the light in the tunnel before I woke up on the table again, mm -hmm, you know, right. or something yeah. like that. And so... And ultimately, does it really make a difference what you and I believe? It is what it is. Yeah. It, yeah. But I think it's interesting to to, to talk about these things. Yeah. And, yeah. and then either way, when we get to resurrection, both views can be compatible exactly. with resurrection. Yeah. Yes. So, conditional view. There's there's a couple things we want to land on before we get started. It gives victory to God. Mm -hmm. I think that's the strongest reason to be a conditionalist is because yep. in the end, the Bible says over and over and over that sin is defeated. Yep. Absolute all all. victory. And to get that, you kind of say, well, then there has to be some kind of conclusion or finishing act going on there and if you're ETC you kind of just see this hanging out there forever yeah well, we've talked about why we've arrived at these from a philosophical perspective but we've, we've got scriptural evidence so um, we're gonna just kind of summarize and go through some verses body of evidence starting in Isaiah 1 28 30 through 31 says but rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish you will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. It's very poetic. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. All right, so consumed by fire is a big motif in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so we get in Matthew 3, um, we got John the Baptist, the axe is at the tree. Um, anyone that doesn't produce good fruit will be thrown into the fire. And Matthew 3.12, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor. The wheat in the barn will be burned up like chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, Matthew 13.40, weeds will be pulled and burned like fire. John 15.6, those who don't remain in me are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Those branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. So are these branches, roots, weeds, are they tormented forever? Doesn't seem that way. No, it seems like they're burned. When you burn like these things, forever. they're they're consumed. So we get the the same kind of words in all of them that it's consumed by fire. And fire is very interesting throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is that we get a picture of fire as something that is directly a result of something that God does. Mm -hmm. And so most people kind of take that as a negative connotation because of their views on eternal conscious torment. But there's also some refining views of hell. So that will eventually come into play in some of these things when we're thinking about it too. So the next thing is there's fire that no one shall quench. Yeah, so when we look at these passages of unquenchable fire, um, there's some things that we need to see um, that it's the fire that's not quenched, not the things that are thrown into the fire. Yeah. So it's always talking about the fire and not what it's, the fire is consuming. Um, so let's just think if we're got a fire right here. So if, <laughs> if I was to jump a bucket of water on it, it would be quenched, it would yeah. go out. But if this wood back here burns completely down and then the fire goes out, we didn't quench the fire. The fire did what it was designed to do. It yeah. consumed what, it consumed the wood. It did its purpose. So I think unquenchable fire is fire that's being put out prematurely. All right, so now we come to a thought of Gehenna and there's mm -hmm. also this kind of unquenchable idea going on there. It's in Mark 9. What What is, how does that frame out? Text, the worms will eat them and do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Jesus's 
quoting here, he's quoting Isaiah 66, 24. It says, they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me and the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. They'll be alone, loathsome to all mankind. You notice here it doesn't mention torment and the bodies are dead. So I think Jesus wouldn't be quoting this verse out of context. Right. So he would have the context of dead bodies yep. in mind. And when he's talking about hell, Gehenna, that's supposedly where these dead bodies are going to be piled up. It's yeah. a picture of destruction. Yeah. God's enemies dying. It's shame, not pain. That's mm -hmm. another way to frame it. Yep. I think uh, that was Edward Fudge's words yep. on that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting also that this word lonesome in um, Isaiah 66 there, um, it's that word's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it's the other verse that they point to for eternal torment in Daniel. Yeah, Daniel, Daniel 12. 12 yeah. Um, where the righteous will rise like the stars, but the unrighteous will rise to everlasting contempt or everlasting, everlasting loathing. Now notice that the ones who are holding the contempt are not the ones burning in hell. Right. It's the ones, it's the righteous in the way they look at those who rebelled against right. God. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't point to the ECT view at all. Right. No. They're looking at the dead bodies in contempt because they rebelled against God. Yeah. So now there's some kind of talk of death and destruction. And this is when you get into ETC primarily, this is really where they kind of camp out as words on death and destruction. So let's look at each one of those verses. The first one is what we all know, it's kind of the steps of salvation we throw yeah. rocks at all <laughs> the time. The, the wages <laughs> of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So yep. again, this is where we said some of these are like ETC proof passages mm -hmm. and they're always used to support ETC, but then when you sit down and read them and you just read it and you go, well, the wages of sin is death. Is that death or is that eternal torment? You talked about death being separated from the tree of life. Yeah. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Yeah. And we're big into hermeneutics. Like why would you interpret something differently than what it would just be meant or said to say in the context yeah. that it was written? It's interesting going back to John 3.16, the next line after this in Romans 6.23 is, but the gift of God is eternal life. Yeah. So a gift, if we're- Because you getting, never think yeah. in, phys in terms of physical, it's always spiritual. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's how this right. is phrased all the time. Mm-hmm. But Next we've got Matthew 10:28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Wow. It's pretty sure. That's like all we need right there, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't it if, if it says it, it says it? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The Old Testament uses 50 Hebrew words and 70 figures of speech to talk about the ultimate death of the wicked, and every single one sounds like extinction. Yeah. Every single one. So you have in Hebrew, you have these 50 words that are all essentially roots of the word death. Mm -hmm. This is really important because yeah. when you look at the Hebrew language, they have words that can describe a whole bunch of other things yeah. that they could be using. I say this all the time that Hebrew, there's 12 words for love. In English, we have one. There's mm -hmm. seven words for worship. In English, we have one, maybe two, if you want to argue that. In death, destruction, we've got like 50 words Word. here. And you would be far-fetched in the Old Testament to even take one of them to mean anything to do with eternal conscious torment or yep. this never-ending tormenting going on. Yep. It just, 
it would be hard to read the Old Testament in Hebrew and, and get that at the end mm -hmm. of the day. Yeah, uh, I like this quote from John Wenham. Um, it says, I have found 264 references to the fate of the lost. It's a terrible catalog, giving the most <laughs> solemn warning. Yet, of the 264 references, there's not a word about unending torment. And very many of them, in their natural sense, clearly refer to destruction. Yeah. Now, it sounds funny, but a lot of times we get theology from David and from the Psalms and mm -hmm. people that were writing in that time. And so yeah. when we look at the Psalms, there's a lot of kind of these words like in Psalm 34 that says, evil brings death to the wicked. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is the theme through all of Psalms. Yeah. Like it doesn't communicate anything differently than that. Mm -hmm. I think we could go through and probably read 20 or 30 Psalms that are... Yeah are framed this way and I, I laugh sometimes about saying if if you don't like it or if you're an e if you take etc you better not be reading the psalms because you're mm -hmm. going to have problems pretty quick yeah um i've got a whole bunch here maybe you can just throw them on the screen when we do yeah. this instead of reading through them I've, I've got about 15 different psalms here and every single one of them in our notes is uh, is about extinction about yeah being destroyed, disintegration, nothingness. Perish, banish like water. I yep. like that one, yep. yeah. So. I like that they shall not even be remembered. Yep. They're not even gonna call them to name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about altogether destroyed? Oh, that's that's one, one of my favorites, yeah, Psalm 37. That, uh, th th these are just really hard passages to argue when you put it mm -hmm. like that. Like, how can something be altogether destroyed but then seemingly go on forever, forever and ever? Like, it's yeah. a complete contradiction of terms. And some will say that this is just poetic on the ECT side or that this only refers to physical death but not spiritual death but a lot of these are eschatological yeah they're looking right forward that God's ultimate victory over sin and his enemies will happen so you could frame that figuratively in the Old Testament like you said and we do that a lot we look mm -hmm. at a lot of figurative po poetic puns mm -hmm. things like that in the Hebrew language but then this kind of thinking is reiterated again in the, in the New, New Testament. Testament. Yep, so Philippians 1.28 talks about the evil will, the people who do evil will be destroyed. Philippians 3.18 and 19, it says their destiny is destruction. Yeah. Um, we got Hebrews 10.39, the same thing, that those who shrink back will be destroyed. Yep. Um, James 4.12. Now this is interesting yep. one because you get the save and the destroy yep. on that yep. one. There's one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Yeah, and whenever you see contrasts like mm -hmm. that, it kind of tips you off to something. Mm -hmm. um, next, Second Peter 2, 3, um, it talks about these false teachers, their condemnations hanging over their heads, and their end is destruction. Yeah. Um, then Second Peter um, 3, 7, the ungodly will be destroyed. First uh, Corinthians three seventeen. More Who, destruction. Whoever um, destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Yeah. Talking about their body. So what I really want our listeners, our watchers, to get out of this is the consistency of this view. Mm -hmm. And so when you go through the Old Testament in Hebrew and you go, this is really hard to frame any other way and then you go to the new testament and it says destruction destruction utter destruction destruction over and mm -hmm. over it gives you this idea that there's just a huge consistency within this view and when you go etc 
you don't get that consistency. Things like, you, you, we call this theological gymnastics, you kind of have to chop things up, move them around a little bit. Redefine words. Redefine words in order mm -hmm. to make it work. We're not doing any of that for this view. We're just simply reading it in what it says. English. <laughs> and if you read it in Hebrew, it's not much different and you arrive at the same kind of thinking. So from here, we go to Gehenna. We already kind of mentioned a little bit about Gehenna, but how does that play into this kind of destruction thinking? Well, I think Jesus uses Gehenna anytime he describes hell. Yeah. Um, and Gehenna, just to recap, was that valley outside of Jerusalem where it historically was a place of bloodshed. Yeah. And it was also, in Jesus' day, a place of refuse and garbage and... Bodies um, piled up. <laughs> exactly. It was just not a good place. It was the worst place on earth. We'll call it hell on earth. Mm -hmm. I guess in modern days, you could kind of relate that to um, Auschwitz. Yeah. You know, the concentration camps. Yeah. Yep. Uh, if, if Jesus were alive today, maybe he would frame hell as Auschwitz. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. so his listeners could have a picture yeah, of picture. The, one of the worst places that you would be on earth. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so in this valley, um, in the Old Testament, we get kind of what I like to call, and other theologians call it, the Jeremiah tradition. Yep. I believe that that's what Jesus had in his head, because there's other traditions of Gehenna in Second Temple literature, yep. but I think Jesus had Jeremiah in mind and not kind of the more Enochic view, right. view of it. Um, so... It was a place where innocent bloodshed, they were sacrificed to Moloch. We mm -hmm. talked about that in the first yep. video, the statue hands out. Um, God's saying that that didn't even come into my mind. Yeah, um, and then he says, he then talks about that place in the future being, you won't call it Topheth anymore, that's another name for it, yeah. but it'll be called the Valley of Slaughter. Right. The Valley of Slaughter, that is what Gehenna meant. Yeah. So when you're framing this, there's a lot of, of thoughts on we do this all the time on thinking and using words that might mean what they say. They might not, might not mean what they say. That's the figurative part mm -hmm. of it. But you have to have a reason to yeah. go that way. Yep. And I think that's the important thing hermeneutically is that you can't just decide one day you're going to take this view mm -hmm. because you like it or yeah. it fits or something like yeah. that. You have to have, scripture has to give you a reason to go this way. Yeah. And Jana brought up the detestable things that happened in that in our first video that notice how God hates burning children. Yeah. Like torturing children through burning. So let's just back up and go through this. What what we're referring to is Molech, and in past videos we've kind of said it where we don't know if Molech was the actual God or describes the type of mm -hmm. burning uh, child sacrifices, yeah. but people would bring their children and they'd put it on an incinerator statue, appeared to be a God, and mm -hmm. the children would be burned alive. And this is kind of the archetype of evil in Canaan, which was a recreated Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what fires up God's wrath, you might yeah. even want to call it. You know, yep. this, this is what God says is the archetype of evil, the most detestable thing. What he wants to go mm -hmm. after more than anything else is children being burned alive. So mm -hmm. when we go back to where we started and we say, whatever you land on, it really needs to fit your nature of God. How can God be so against that yet say, I'm going to do something very similar for my solution to the yeah. end of the world. And I don't know who your listeners are, but I'm empathetic toward those people who would be, have grown up like me. Yeah. I had people literally say from the pulpit, their belief was that children were gonna to be tossed into the lake of fire. Right. Mm -hmm. So I empathize with some of you that might be listening. Yeah. And this might come as a, a new thought or a way of thinking, but um, uh, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. You get into the age of accountability on this one, mm -hmm. and you start talking about, you know, at, at what point does somebody go to hell? You know, yeah. would 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 God send a baby that hasn't been born but is life according to the scripture mm -hmm. to hell because they never came to God? Is there a? And they'd say, well, no, because they're innocent. But then, okay, well, a five-year-old, well, like. Kind of know. What about, you know, where's the cutoff? Yeah. What, if they, what if they're in Afghanistan and they've right. never been given a chance, yes. you know? And yes. then uh, God was going to tell you next week, but you just got hit by a bus. Sorry, Sorry. you know, yeah. you burn in hell forever and ever. Yeah, I like Brad Jerzak's quote that kind of goes along with this. We ought to note the irony and incongruence the mm. church of the church utilizing the very place where God became violently offended by the literal burning of children as our primary metaphor for the final and eternal burning of God's wayward people in literal flames. Thus, God becomes the very Molech who decree, decrees that the angels must deliver his children over to the flames, even though this was the very place that he ordered the very place he ordered Hinnom to be desecrated in the first place. It's the reason why he he wanted Hinnom to be, yeah. uh, the Valley of Hinnom to be desecrated is because of the burning of yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> so some of these references to Gehenna, it's it's kind of important to get a broader sense of this. Some of some of these really give no thoughts of afterlife. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're really yeah. here on earth. And when you try to kind of fit in this more eschatological thinking, it kind of breaks down the way that the scripture works. It, it doesn't go mm -hmm. that way very easily. Now, how does this, Matt and I are partial preterists, and uh, that comes into thinking here a little bit too. Yeah. So in Jesus, in the Gospels, when he's using Gehenna, uh, if you look back to Jeremiah's context, it was about Jerusalem also, God giving Jerusalem over to armies of other nations, yeah. allowing them to be destroyed because of the acts that they did. Is Jesus using that same picture of saying, hey, if right. you guys don't come to my way of peace, living by my laws, turning back to me, Rome's going to overthrow you. And it happened yeah. in 70 AD. So maybe he's painting that picture yeah. instead of an afterlife judgment picture in the Gospels. One of the things that people fall into theologically often is that they try to take texts and only show an eschatological or a prophetic view on those texts. Mm -hmm. We see this a lot in the Old Testament where they'll take like Psalm 8, for instance, and they'll say, you know, this is what the Messiah looks like. Well, the in context, the writing was Psalm 8 was towards men, not towards the Messiah. And so when you take it and you only apply an eschatological or prophetic sense to it, you're missing part of the original message. Mm -hmm. So let's just look just for a second at Second Temple Judaism. Um, so when they used Gehenna, they had similar to us. All three views right. were in, in involved. Some of the Jews, Hebrews, uh, thought eternal torment. Yeah. The majority thought annihilation, so the yep. vast majority. There are even some, though, that had universal restoration. Yeah. Uh, they'd go through the fires of Gehenna for a year. Hang out there for a year, then, you know, do your the, time. Yeah, so those <laughs> Jews that were following Torah and the Gentiles would go through. Is that the, where the idea of purgatory would have come uh, I guess. From, yeah. 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 So this mm -hmm. goes back to some Jewish roots, some traditional yeah. Jewish roots is yeah. where this All idea comes from. And so there's an idea that, that if you're simply annihilated, you might not be able to be judged differently for your t terrible things that you did. So somewhere in this, some uh, annihilationists decide that there needs to be some aspect of judgment. So mm -hmm. you can take an ETC view of this sort of in terms of the hellfire and brimstone that that might still exist within your, your thing of being thrown in into torment. But then 
you don't have to go there. No. You can just have figurative language mm -hmm. that somebody's doing time. So that's where this comes in. Now this is interesting too, that when you get into an orthodox view of hell, they're going to frame things up similar to that understanding. Yeah, so based on your orientation to God, the fire is either God, the fire of God's love towards you, which purifies you, yeah. or the fire of God's torment by not wanting to respond to God's love. Yeah. So that's kind of the orthodox view. Now, if you didn't notice, we're going through textures of interpretation here. Uh -huh. And so within textures of interpretation, we want to say, do the languages of scripture denote or change our feelings about the way that we had ordinarily approach this? What do we have here? Um, so I think uh, the first place we need to land on is the word eternal, aeon or aeonius. Yep. Um, and most translate this as eternal. Um, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word olam, yep. which olam could be used as endless, but it really didn't have an endless some people Concept try to, to say it. this. Some yeah. people try to kind of work it out that there's this endless part on it, but it's it, it, you look at most of the places in the Septuagint, which the horizon. Was, yeah, it, it doesn't really give that idea. So it would be yeah. a stretch, I guess. Is what so, I'm yeah, saying. so um, it might be about the quality bit of no end in sight. Yeah. <laughs> so the Greek ion and Ionius pertained more to a location than, and it could refer to a period of time as well. Yeah. So. I think this is really important, though, is that, you know, typically some people want to put, you know, looking through a, an hourglass and saying it could fall anywhere in here. And it's it's not so much time as it is the specific place, location, thinking. Yeah. And it, it could be about results. Yeah. And I think often our, we looked at with Chris Date, and we'll get to a quick recap of the big three, but yeah. it, it was about the eternal destruction or e eternal punishment was about the results of the punishment yeah. and not the action that goes on forever. Right. So. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah. Then there's Sodom and Gomorrah thinking. Now this is, I, I again, when I come back to thinking this way. I do like how Jana started out saying mm -hmm. philosophically this just makes sense with the character of God and yeah. you know it doesn't take a scholar or a theologian or somebody that knows Hebrew and Greek yeah. to get there. You just go this it's, it's just critical makes sense. thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just think about this for a minute. Yeah. But when you do get into the context of the biblical scripture, what we learn over and over is that the Bible is going to teach something clearly mm -hmm. in some places, and when it's unclear in other places, it's important to use the same rules of interpretation mm -hmm. to let the Bible scripture yeah. interpret scripture. Yeah, so we get Jude 7 in the New Testament, which talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as examples for those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Notice the fire is eternal. Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah, we look at that story back in Genesis. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They're, they're, they're up, they're annihilated. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. <laughs> yeah, they're dead. But what does that mean? What does it mean? So if Sodom and Gomorrah are the, the picture of what eternal fire is, remember what Chris Date said, right. uh, we can use these words eternal, but what does it mean? Yeah. Well, it doesn't it's mean it's still burning over no, there. No, it doesn't mean it's still burning. It's like- So uh, if we take a field trip over there, it's the, not still burning. No, it's yeah. not. So the eternal fire isn't there. So it's a common picture of eschatological judgment. But it was yeah. forever destroyed yeah. by fire. Mm -hmm. yeah. So these are some big words that you kind of get usually with the ETC camp. And the other one that you kind of hear is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of them you get as a picture of eternal pain, biting your tongue. And anger. Ang but yeah. anger is probably 
the best translation of it. Yeah. Um, so Psalm 35, 16 says the godless, like godless jesters at a feast, they gnash their teeth. So it's talking about them being angry in context in Psalm 112.10. Also, the wicked will be will see it and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and melt away. Yeah, it's interesting in <laughs> Acts. Stephen presents the gospel in Acts, and we get gnashing of teeth yeah. as the result of hearing the gospel yeah. presented. Yeah, the temple hierarchy are mad at him. They're angry, and they gnash their teeth. It's not out of pain out of hearing yeah. the gospel. It's because they're mad. So, and I think that's what, when we pay attention to the idioms, of the Hebrew, mm-hmm. this yeah. is an idiom. It is, yeah. yeah. But we have, if we read it from our Western lens and say this, the, we think this means pain. Mm-hmm. Well, right. That the humor, what's up? Humor, humor nerd. <laughs> hermeneutics. <laughs> yeah, hermeneutics. <laughs> that word. <laughs> so when we read weeping and gnashing of teeth, mm-hmm. I, I think most people that grew up in the church just kind of get that word mm-hmm. of meaning like eternal torment. Yeah. When, mm-hmm. when you actually look at the scripture, I would say. This is one of those areas where you come and you read it and you go, well, that actually just kind of sounds like mm-hmm. annihilation more yeah, than anything Especially else. that Psalm 112, 10, yeah. they will gnash their teeth and melt away. Now, we've been talking <laughs> about fire a lot because we're on hell, but but let's, <laughs> let's talk about literal versus metaphorical. Now, you guys, the watchers know that I have a problem with the word literal. I want to just throw that one across the yeah. table every time I hear it. But mm-hmm. let's talk about this. Yeah. Literal means according to the genre it was written in, not according <laughs> right. to face value. So, so yes. So conditionalists, they'll see fire sometimes as metaphorical. Um, yeah. So you can combine. You can't really combine the images of like fire and outer darkness. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, fire gives off light. So how can it be that? So maybe they should be taken as metaphors. Greg Boyd, who we had on the podcast, yep. sees it this way. He sees that the fire of God's love won't compromise human freedom. Yeah. And so God, um, the fire of his love is that thing that, like we just talked about kind of in the orthodox view, but he sees it as God, since God sustains all things. So if you don't want to be part of God's kingdom, he just takes his hand off you and you disintegrate into nothing. Um, so that's kind of the way that he yeah. takes that. So There's some traditionalist verses that we can kind of cross-examine and I think we probably need to just briefly go into this mm-hmm. a little bit. In these videos we don't want to really left any rock unturned yep. and so that's kind of our motto is if it's out there we want to get to mm-hmm. it and so some of these might come off a little dry and we might just rattle through them but what are some of these texts that we kind of need to just examine and put on the shelf together? So we alluded to this kind of back at the beginning. If you look at Genesis 2:17, God God says, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day you will eat of it, you'll surely die. Yeah. Um, and that, the traditional say, well, they ate of it and they didn't die, so that must yeah. mean separation since they were right. kicked out of the garden. How do you handle How that? How do you handle that? Well, yeah. in the Bible, in that day you eat, you will die, was a Hebrew idiom. Yeah. We see yeah. it elsewhere in 1 Kings 2.37. It rhymes in Hebrew. It does. Yeah, it's yep. pretty neat. Yeah, yeah 1 Kings 2.37, Solomon warns uh, somebody that if you go outside the wall and pass the Kidron Valley, surely on that day you will die. I mean, they died later. They didn't <laughs> die as soon as they crossed the Kidron Valley. <laughs> it, was, it was about the action that you take now will have a certainty of a consequence in the future. Yeah. So your trajectory is that of being dead. So some people are trying to re- read separation or torment into that, and it's it's not really yeah. the right way to read yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah, so God was merciful in, se- in separating Adam and Eve from the tree of life so they wouldn't live forever in, right. in sin. 
Um, so God seems to have a plan to deal with sin and evil in, in, in his good world. Now we talk about a lot in momentary conversion settings and mm -hmm. in salvific thinking. Uh, what, what does that have to play into thinking this way? Yeah, so we always talk about the journey. Yeah. Not, not, not the moment, like when we look at sozo and soteria in, in the Greek, uh, most often, vast majority of time, it's in future tense and not yeah. in past tense. So it's, it's like you're going after somebody. It's yeah. the trajectory, like we said, of your, of your, your life. Yes, it, we have all three tenses of salvation in the Bible, but the majority of the senses, it's a journey. So if you're on a journey, you have the choice of life and death, like in Deuteronomy yeah. 30. Today I Absolutely. set before you life and death. Choose this day to follow the Lord and you'll live. So let's go to Luke 16, 24. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. A lot of people land on this Abraham's bosom, Hades type of thinking as kind of a sole description of what torment might be within a context of hell. What do we do with this if you're a conditionalist? Um, if you're a conditionalist, I think even some that are in the ECT camp go this way. Well, they will... We've alluded to that yeah, already. Yeah, so is, this is the only time I believe uh, that Jesus uses Hades and not Gehenna. Yeah. Um, and, but it's a parable also. It's a parable. It, it was a parable that was popular in the culture. It was mm -hmm. listed twice in the Babylonian Talmud. And there's a recent guy who did a dissertation on this, and he was able to track it all the way back to Egypt. Yeah. So Now, it's important when you, when you approach this that... This is a weird story in the mm -hmm. Bible. This is likely some figurative language going on, mm -hmm. but it's also what what theologically we call intermediate state. And mm -hmm. this is kind of gets into some of your thinkings of the thief on the cross too. I don't want to get too far into that, but in this weird intermediate state, particularly between the resurrection and the ascension, mm -hmm. we have some really interesting things going on. And this is one of those that kind of comes into play is that this is different than our concept of hell. Mm -hmm. Our concept of hell and the idea of what's happening is an intermediate state or holding place for those that are not obedient and faithful is going to be different. So that, that comes into your thinking and this is where we kind of backed up and said, this is gray. A lot of people have different thoughts on what the Bible mm -hmm. says here, and it doesn't necessarily teach one thing or another, but it's still worth making the point here. Yeah, a couple of people go different ways with this, if it even is teaching about the afterlife at all. It's sandwiched in Luke here between... What's the main point of the text? Yeah. Is this it? Not really. Like, it's sandwiched <laughs> between texts about money yeah. and how you deal with the poor. Right. And so that was the whole, could be the whole point of it. Also, yeah. also his final point is like, you have the law and the prophets. You can't go back and warn your brothers. Yeah. So the immediacy of following God in this life um, might be his point also, and not even talking about the afterlife. When right. you die, maybe you seal your fate. And that kind of gets into the universalists who think that maybe you can repent after you die. Yeah. So, so, so to be clear, there's a question here of in this lifetime, we get some ideas in scripture that we there's some reason why we need to make a decision to mm -hmm. follow him or not follow him right now when we die it seems like god knows that in a judgment sense like mm -hmm. either we're going to heaven or we're going to an intermediate state which if you're in an intermediate state you're in trouble mm -hmm. and so then after this when the dead are resurrected and go into judgment 
what happens to them? What what what's going to happen? Are is there another chance for reconciliation? Do you do you run out of chances for mm -hmm. reconciliation? Do you only have the chance on this earth? or might you have a chance outside of this earth? Yeah, and kind of the reason that I put through this verse in here is um, ETC camp sees this as like a, uh, a foretaste of what's gonna happen in the future of yeah. being tortured in fire or something right. like that, even though a lot of them will say that, yeah, this is an intermediate state. Right. All right, so 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So what is everlasting destruction? That's really the question. First question, at hand. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting here. Um, the ETC people say, well, take that shut out from part of yeah. the verse and they'll hinge on that. Right. So that the destruction can't mean annihilation because how can you be shut out from God right. if you're annihilated? Yeah. But shut out from is not in the text. Right. <laughs> There's also a point to land on here mm -hmm. that you look at destruction and it's a noun, it's not a verb. And, you know, mm -hmm. we, we often go into these parts of speech, if you failed ninth grade grammar, you're in trouble here, but mm -hmm. it is important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here's how the verse should read um, without adding that extra words in. So yeah. they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So we this whole same construction of a sentence is also found in Acts 3.19 where it says that refreshing comes from the presence of the Lord. So is refreshing shut out from the presence of the Lord? No, refreshing is in God's presence. Right. So saying the destruction is coming from God to yeah. the ones who are wicked. <laughs> now some people get hung up here. They don't see God as a form of destruction. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem when you go into the Old Testament because or God like a fire type brings view. a lot of destruction. And so, mm -hmm. you know, is there a problem to align God with mass destruction. We've talked about this in yeah. our last series. Yeah, and then you got the words eternal here. Uh, this shows, as we believe, that the results of the destruction is eternal. They are dead and they're not coming back. Yeah. So it's not that they're being destroyed for eternity. It's not eternal destroying, it's eternal destruction. It's a completed act. Um, also, look at, I believe it's Hebrews, somewhere four to six in there. Um, Jesus brought us eternal redemption. Is Jesus eternally redeeming us, or because of his one act of, of the incarnation, are we redeemed because of that eternally? Yeah. It's the results. It's not the eternal punishing, it's the eternal punishment. So at the end of the day, you take Second Thessalonians 1, nine, and it's very hard to get some kind of separation or eternal torment mm -hmm. out of that It's not verse. in the text. It's not in the text. And so Added in. we're not bending it, we're not doing any gymnastics, we're just reading, reading it. it in Greek and saying it's not there. Not there. Well, yeah. I remember that as a light bulb moment for me when I realized that people were not going to be destroyed for eternity, yeah. but they'll be eternally destroyed. Yeah. Do you guys remember, I don't know, um, that one guy that went to hell for 23 minutes? Do you guys remember? <laughs> I can't remember his name. He, I don't get into those. <laughs> well, again, for, if you're from my background, these people were celebrated, right? Yeah, right? And so one of his things that he, in his testimony, is that he saw people's arms being ripped off and then reattached, only to be ripped off again. Do you know what I'm saying? It kind of gets to that. Yeah. But if you think that the Bible says that they will be destroyed for all eternity, yeah. you don't have yeah. to go there at yeah. all yeah. with right. such horrible, heinous thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's like the weeping and gnashing of teeth. What if I had no teeth? God, God will give you <laughs> teeth. God will give you teeth. It's like a gnash <laughs> 
Teeth will be provided. <laughs> All right. So what we've been doing is we've been taking pretty much every kind of verse that the ETC camp might use or that just talks about any kind of death or destruction or anything like that. And we've read it. We've analyzed it. And at the end of the day, we've pretty much come to the place where we go, gosh, all of those for the most part sound like some kind of imminent ending death or destruction. They don't sound like something that would just keep rolling on forever mm -hmm. and ever. Finality. Finality. Now, when we interviewed Chris Date, he went through what we call the big three passages. These are where the ECT camp really tends to get mm -hmm. hung up, especially if you're reformed. Yeah, they're the three verses where it connects eternal with a punishing act or action. So those are the only three verses. So if these three don't prove eternal torment, and I thought Chris annihilated it. He did. Yeah. <laughs> it's they, about an hour long film, but we're not going to spend much time on these no, three because so, we got a whole hour yeah, on it so already. So go check those out. Yeah, so let's just give bullet points. Matthew 25, 41 and 46, uh, the sheep and the goats. So we saw that this, the ones, that life and death are again pinned against each other. So, and death means death, life means yep. life. So the eternal punishment is the results of the punishment in there, not the ongoing punishment forever. Yeah. Then we've got Revelation 14, and the, the words we use there is torment will rise forever and ever. And it's important when you frame this out that this is destruction on the nations, not final judgment. And then we kind of been talking about Edom and Sodom and Gomorrah and these, these you know, figurative languages mm -hmm. saying, even when you see this, there's finality to that. Yeah. It's not this ever-ending, you know, non-stop thing going on. Yeah, so like Chris states, uh, he used, again, the, the images of, um, like, Joseph's dreams, the yeah. dreams that he interpreted as, uh, the picture was this, but then you got to look at how it was interpreted, and every one of these in Revelation is how they were interpreted, is about ultimate destruction and yeah. not eternal torment. So we're going back to what we said about let scripture interpret scripture. Mm -hmm. So we're taking places that are clear in scripture and we're applying them to the ones mm -hmm. that are unclear. Yep, so Revelation 20, 10, um, 14 to 15, that whole thing, again, it's apocalyptic, yeah. the beast and the false prophet. If you've watched our eschatology videos, we've seen that they are not actual people, but systems. And yeah. so, um, now this is the one that I really land on when I'm, you know, years ago when I'm a kid going mm -hmm. back and forth over this, this is where when I hear the ECT side of things and I go, what do you do with second death? Mm -hmm. That becomes very problematic when you read it in here. And, you know, it's funny that this, this scripture is one used for ECT. And like we've been saying, when you second read it, you kind of, second death means death. Yeah. And right at the beginning of Revelation 21, it says that death will be destroyed. Yeah. And so that is the interpretation of what he's saying here is a second death, even though death yeah. is depicted as a conscious being, um, it, it's talking about their destruction. Paul, right. He said Paul gets in the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, that it's yeah. about destruction. So if that's Authorities about and powers language. Yeah. We love this conversation yeah. and they're destroyed here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it's about God's ultimate victory over, over death with the annihilation of those in the second death and annihilation of death in the grave. Good. So that's a summary of the big three. Mm -hmm. Go back and watch the whole hour-long film on it yep. if you haven't seen that one. The The next place that I think we need to go is the philosophical argument. So this is really where we started. Now mm -hmm. I'm going to say 
Although particularly those who hold a conditionalist view from the reformed camp, this is the one that they're the quickest to throw out. In fact, they don't want to give it any merit at all. They, they might call it emotionalism or mm -hmm. something like that. But you and I, and particularly Jana here, we look at it and we say, this is actually perhaps the most important key that we think about what Scripture is actually saying and that when we go through all these textures of interpretation, we're arriving through a thought process that's bathed in the Holy Spirit and prayer, and this is where we come. So what is the philosophical argument? I think we need to start with the cross yeah. for this. So when we look at the cross, was Jesus eternally tortured on the cross? If our payment for sins... Boy, this is a yeah. big conversation. Yeah. We're going to make an atonement film someday. Yeah. So we're not going to get deep into atonement, but if... Isaiah 53 and everything, I mean, your, your mm -hmm. views of what yeah. this comes into play with all of this. Yeah, but. yeah we'll get into all of this. Uh, usually, the substitution view is that Jesus suffered in our, in our place. And did he suffer eternal torment? No, he suffered death. Yeah. So right. it points again to if there's a price to be paid it's there's another death, not eternal torment talk of separation so was jesus ever separated from god your mm -hmm. theology is going to come into yeah. play here yeah this goes back to our garden of eden thing where yeah. ect believes that death is separation but we made a whole video on psalm 22 which shows that my god my god why have you forsaken me isn't about separation but it it is actually about jesus quoting and read all through psalm 22 and, right. and mm -hmm. Jana is also taught on this as well yep. yeah and she has a this on the same view that we do without yeah just by reading it and Matt you, you have a great little five-minute message on on you know the, the why why it wasn't a cry of abandonment mm -hmm. and I think that's really important in the yeah. in the context too that God was in Christ reconciling the world the world to himself mm -hmm. yeah he wasn't abandoning Christ on the cross then there's love and justice yep annihilation or conditional immortality it seems more merciful than ECT some will say that that's just emotions but so why is that let's break this down well naturally we want the most strict biggest because we view God huge that and he is eternal and so if you've offended an eternal God then the punishment must be eternal is the logic from ECT yep. and so they want the most torment and just make it big because God's big. Well, there's <laughs> so. an idea here that the worst people on earth, the Hitlers of the mm -hmm. world, need to burn forever and ever and ever and there's no, there's no such torment or judgment that could, that could be enough so to speak and a lot of people hear that and they go Gosh, that just doesn't sound like the nature of the God I know. Mm -hmm. And so they get hung up with that, and maybe they land on annihilation because they think, well, a quick, simple death just mm -hmm. sounds a lot more yeah. like a graceful God to me. Yeah, and so this kind of gets into and this is something we talk about a lot, Jana, is um, mm -hmm. uneven scales. Right, right. So. I mean, it, the punishment has to fit the yeah. crime. You know, I was watching, um, I was in the hospital taking care of a patient that um, couldn't communicate with me and they had the TV on. So I was watching this documentary and it was about, a, unfortunately, a woman who had been in an abusive relationship and it escalated one night to the point where she was stabbed, doused with gasoline and burned alive. Yeah. And she was a single mom, so she, she lived since she's saying that her thought was, oh my goodness, if I don't get help, I'm gonna die and my children are gonna be left alone. 
So there was something in her that caused her to, even while she was burning alive, yeah. go outside, get um, attention of her neighbor, and she was spared. Wow. And, and her testimony was this. She said, I did not deserve to be burned alive. She said, nobody deserves to be burned alive. alive. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I believe her. Yeah. Because she had the experience and she said it was so awful that mm -hmm. she would not wish that on any yeah. other person. So that's another mm -hmm. philosophical way that I was thinking yeah. about this in light of the love and the justice and the compassion mm -hmm. of God. Now there's, there, we could do this all day. There's a whole bunch of these talks, but you, you, another one is to frame the Hitler example that I just said. If you, if you put Hitler as the most terrible person who's ever, you know, committed atrocity, the archetype of the new evil mm -hmm. of our modern day, and he's going to gas six million Jews or whatever the number is, we go, that's horrible, that's terrible and everything else. But then you look at God and at least in the gas chamber, it was quick. Mm-hmm. And it was only six million. And you look at God and you say, well, he's going to never ending torture all these people for, you know, way worse than the gas chamber for way more time than mm -hmm. the gas chamber. Mm -hmm. So essentially, philosophically, in terms of justice, there's framework that kind of makes God out to be a crazy Hitler type monster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one verse that keeps coming back to my head is that God's favor lasts for a lifetime, but mm -hmm. but his anger lasts for a moment. Yeah. Right. It doesn't say his wrath lasts forever. Right. It says his anger lasts for, for a, a moment. moment. Yeah. He gets justice done. Yeah. So we can get on with the Eden project. Yeah, right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So resurrection. Yes, we got so. resurrection. If we are resurrected to physical bodies and put on immortality then how are we kept alive? Yeah, it, it says that, but it's, there's different ways that we can interpret this, that- it's Destruction yeah. versus eternal destroying. Yeah. yeah, it never says anywhere in the Bible that the wicked ever get immortality. It always says that the righteous get immortality. Yeah. So the righteous are raised. So people have equated, and we see this over and over, is that when we read forever, language mm -hmm. in sense of the believers that we also want to read that in sense of the unbelievers. Yeah, and nowhere says the unbelievers. So yep. we're going to get to universal reconciliation, but that's going to come into play here mm -hmm. is that, you know, if there is a sense that everybody is eternal, then there might actually be framework to say, well, if you're going to read it that way, then you also need to read it that yeah. they're all going to come back to Jesus. Yeah, and all throughout the Bible, like we've seen, you get a choice between life and death. You can choose choose to eat from the tree of life, or you can yeah. choose to eat from the knowledge of good and evil and, yeah. and die. So here's another one. God can do anything, right? Mm -hmm. He's omnipotent. So if he yeah. can do anything, and if it's his choice, why would he choose... To torment people forever. Yeah, it, like you said, God is logical, and all everything we see God doing in the Bible has some logical, and yeah. it it doesn't seem like there's actually a purpose for keeping these people alive right. uh, forever. It it seems that if they, like Chris Date says, if they have sinned against God and chosen not to be part of his his family and his good creation and right reject the one who holds them together, then yeah. that should mean that they're annihilated. It doesn't make sense. So the, the big hang up here is that some people feel like this is vindictive towards God's character, that it just doesn't work. 
Yeah, um, I know that Chris Date wrestled with this. It kind of seemed like in our thing, and we, we we love Chris, and we believe also we hold the Bible extremely high. And if the Bible actually said these things, then yes, we would believe it. Right. But the Bible doesn't say like we've said. We've gone over all these verses. Every verse that yeah. could point to eternal torment, it doesn't. Yeah. We've shown that it points to conditional immortality. Yeah. So with that being said. Let's just talk about the strengths of this view. I think this is really, some people are going to wish we would have just cut right to the chase an hour ago and gotten here, but let's just talk about why particularly the three of us kind of land here. We started the film kind of very briefly just saying this is how we got here, but let's really get into each particular view of what is the strength of thinking this way. Yeah, I think one of the biggest strengths is the strength is extremely biblical. Yeah. <laughs> We've shown it over and over. Exegetically, it holds together. Philosophically, it holds yep. together. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of holes in it. We don't have mm-hmm. to reinterpret death. We don't have to, you know, try to figure out what this second, second death, death means perish. or all this stuff. We're not doing, again, all these theological gymnastics to try to make mm-hmm. a view work that's going to influence the rest of our things. So, you know... <laughs> Again, if you, if you, I don't want to, I'm not trying to pick on the reform view, but if you're reformed and you go this way, like our, our Chris Date friend does, then it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to try to figure it out. Now, it still works, obviously, because, you know, one of the best guys in the world came to that point, mm-hmm. but you're, you're going to have more issues that way. So let words mean what they simply mean. Yeah. It's just the cross. Yeah. I mean, Jesus didn't suffer eternal torment on the cross. He suffered death, and the wages of sin is death. Death does not equal eternal torment. No, death is death. Yeah. (laughs) Um, God actually conquers sin. This is probably my favorite. I said Mm -hmm. that earlier, that God is victorious. No ands, buts, or ors about it. He simply conquers sin. Yep, it's not left contained in some corner of the galaxy or in Gehenna, in a recreated earth, he annihilates it. Now, Matt, we pick on Plato and Aristotle all the time for the way that they've influenced views of Christianity today. And this is probably my number one hang-up with churchianity today is more people's views are based on Plato and Aristotle and Greek mythology than they are on the scripture. And this is, in my mind, one of the best strengths of this view. Yeah, um, it takes the Hebrew thought all the way through of mm-hmm. the non-immortal soul. We are not naturally immortal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you also get into extra biblical works and people don't like to talk about extra biblical works, but we've also got all kinds of apostolic writings. And as we get into these, there's never a mention of hell as this eternal torment thought. Like it's just not there. Yeah. People try to frame it that way, but it just, it would be hard to get that at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah, the majority, extreme majority view in Second Temple Judaism was annihilation. And then, even when we get into Acts, like the gospel proclamations, if you look at every, I think there's 10 or 11 gospel proclamations in Acts, yeah. what do you see? You don't see an atonement theory, and you never see hell. Yeah. Now, Jana's been talking about this really throughout the home film, but the punishment fits the crime here. Mm-hmm. Where, when you get into ECT, it's it's all over the place. You, you don't know what to do with it. So when you're looking at, at um, conditional immortality, you just say that all have sinned, mm-hmm. fallen short of the glory of God. If they're not obedient to Christ, then they're just dead. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things also when we look at justice that God is both, we say love and holy, but here we see in this view that God is just. Yeah. And it's and the judgment is also merciful at the same time, so it fits with the character of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now I also land. I'll kind of say this is the last one we've given. I think way more than enough, but we're free will people, and mm-hmm. this is this is important in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I kind of am sympathetic towards Boyd's view of God holding all things together. If we choose to reject His offer of eternal life, eternal life, as we said, is a gift. Yeah, it's not something intrinsic about us. That if we reject it, the natural thing is if God obliges, then we disintegrate into nothingness if he takes his sustaining hand off of us. Right. So in the end, one of the reasons why I personally have arrived to a view of conditional immortality is because theologically I'm always looking for the view that just simply works, Mm -hmm. the one that makes the most sense, the one usually that has the least amount of jump roping to do or just fits in with the totality of scripture. And in this case, this is primarily how and why I personally have arrived here and I think you guys have too. Now, some people would say, well, what are the weaknesses with the view? Where, where, does, it, where does it fall short? Yeah, I think the biggest weakness is tradition. Um, yeah. Tradition. Tradition. <laughs> yeah, we talked about in our first episode, six theological schools in the first few centuries after the apostles. Um, four were Christian universalists. One was conditional immortality, that's Ephesus. Yep. Um, one, Rome, eternal torment. Yeah. Um, it makes sense that eternal torment became the popular one because of the Catholic Church yep. and that coming out of Rome. Also, the other four that were Christian Universalists were in extremely Platonic and Hellenized areas. Yeah. Um, Ephesus, not as much. Right. Um, but the thing, even though tradition has held this, just because it's tradition doesn't mean it's true. I remember Chris yeah. Date debating Al Mohler on, on this view. I, uh, go check out that debate if you haven't. Al Mohler, one of the top like reformed scholars out there, Every one of his answers referred back to tradition when and Chris Day kept going to the Bible yeah. with this. And yeah. so that was one of the biggest things that won me over was listening yeah. to that debate was because, oh my gosh, Al Mohler, the brilliant guy, doesn't can't answer with anything but tradition. Yeah. And I think we're resistant to something new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know necessarily if you're asking your viewers to adopt this new way of thinking. It's we more, don't care what they do. Yeah, we don't, <laughs> just, just start to to get maybe used to this this idea. My mm-hmm. hope is that this will be mainstream thinking, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. 20, 30 years from now. It's the, it's the view that I want to teach my children. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Now I want to finish by just saying that um, we, we made a point of this in both of the films already, but but this is not some crazy heretical view. No. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's unfortunate that within most mainstream churches, if somebody says they're an annihilationist, I don't like that word because it yeah. just sounds terrible. Yeah. But, sounds but if somebody says that, then everybody kind of like looks at them and goes, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth Throw of the matter the is, is this is... We we truly believe this is the better scriptural approach to it. Like if, if you you know people that say I want to I want the most literal view ever. You hear that all the, those are the people I want to throw things at. But <laughs> but they say that and I go well then this is it. Yeah. Like you know how you do you reinterpret death? How do you get to ECT if that's the way you think? So again it just it seems to make sense. I hope that uh, 
this has positively influenced mm -hmm. you to consider it, to you know, go through scripture, to rethink things that have always been told to you, whether it's been based on church tradition, Greek mythology, what your pastor told you when you were 12 and you didn't want to burn in hell, whatever that is, rethink it, like the website says, rethinking hell, and come up with what the best philosophical, justice, scriptural, all of them together. That lines up with the character of God. And where are you going to line up? Now, all that saying, I kind of like some other parts of views. I mm -hmm. think it would be great if all mm -hmm. actually come to find Jesus someday. Mm -hmm. Could that happen? And is God big enough to do that? So. so in that matter, I hope I'm wrong on this view, yeah. but you know what? We'll find out. Yeah, so in our next episode, we'll investigate universal reconciliation. It might be a week or so. We're going on spring break. So, <laughs> but stay tuned. We'll have another video up um, examining that view um, in our next episode. May God bless you and keep you.